Written on the pages of the great book of nature lies a truth so profound that it has beckoned men and women throughout the ages to seek its wisdom. We will continue this quest and study many stories of humanity as we search for this light. On this journey, we will examine philosophy, religion, and science to uncover the hidden mysteries behind myth and legend using the symbols of universal Freemasonry. Welcome to Legends of the Craft. Welcome back to Legends of the Craft. And today we have a very ancient legend to examine, one that we think is perhaps foundational to what we understand in Freemasonry today. Today we'll be journeying all the way back to the beginning of recorded history and the civilization of the Sumerians and examining the myth of the descent of Inanna into the underworld. So before we get into Inanna and her myths, it's important to kind of set a, a cultural context to this period of time, which is about the 4th millennia BC to the 2nd millennia BC. So it's about 6,000 years ago this, that, that we know that these myths were being circulated. And the Sumerians um, lived in several different cities. They, they had city-states, and the main city was Sumer, hence Sumerians, right? The city of Sumer. It's mentioned in the Bible, and it really is the beginning of civilization as we know it today. Not that there weren't you know, groups of people working together prior to the 4th millennia B.C., but this idea that we have of a civilization with a city, there's a temple complex in the middle of the city, you know, there's agriculture around, you know, the, essentially in the suburbs and the rural areas, and they're collecting food, bringing it into the cities, that there's a bureaucracy, you know, there's irrigation, um, schools, this, this, this type of civilization is new at this point, at least to what we have discovered, right? And... But really what's overarching with this type of civilization is the idea of time. So if we take for granted this, this, you know, the calendar that we use, that, you know, days are 24 hours, that an hour is 60 minutes, that a minute is 60 seconds. Well, these are concepts invented by the Sumerians to the best of our knowledge today. And so they invented, in a sense, our perception of time. And that's very important because when you start dividing the day, you start dividing hours, you start organizing and creating bureaucracy. And that really changed the consciousness of human beings. It's a really interesting point, Brother Matthias. And I think that it comes about at a time where humanity is experiencing another crucial change in its method of living which is the transition from uh, subsistence hunter-gatherer type societies to settled agricultural civilizations. And I think one necessitates the other. You don't have a bureaucratic civilization that can measure, thing in unit, measure things in units of time without this transition to a new method of providing for oneself. Because mm -hmm. when you live in a, in a hunter-gatherer existence, you, it's timeless. There is no there is no marked periods of the year because especially in a region like Sumeria where the where the seasons are very mild, there's not really a harsh transition between summers and winters. 
everything is kind of the same. Every day is kind of the same. You have the same goals to achieve. You have to go out. You have to gather some roots and some tubers and some fruits. And you got to kill some animals. Mm-hmm. And that never really changes. That's kind of always your life. There, there are ceremonies that go along with that. You know, people die and, and you mark their transition from this world to the next. But beyond that, nothing is ever really different. It's all kind of the same consistent experience of life. But when you settle in cities, cities require surplus food. Surplus food requires agriculture. Agriculture necessitates an intimate relationship with time. And so this marks a a dramatic change in human consciousness, like you said, that that all of this suddenly becomes necessary in a way that was never thought of before. So I, I actually think that time is the essential foundation of all human civilization and how we perceive time um, determines how we experience and create our civilizations. I like what you said there because this timeless idea that exists before the invention of time is is sort of, it's kind of like the Garden of Eden, right? You know, everything's just perfect. Like it's, it's more of a, a sense of paradise, right? Well, time creates something now, uh, like a mode of thinking that's linear. And that linear mindset says, okay, there's a past, and there's a future, and there's a present. N- not that these concepts didn't exist, but I don't think they could be articulated now that time had been invented. And that articulation kind of, in some ways, it, it's, it's an involution. Well, I would, but at the same time, it's sort of an evolution. I, I would say that, that that ability to articulate is what determines their existence. Like, how do you how do you experience something if you can't describe it? Not like like truly like if you really have no no conception of time whatsoever. Like you are living in this kind of Edenic state that you mentioned, where like it's it's absolute innocence because you're you're somewhat naive to the way that the world is operating around you because once you develop agriculture and, and you realize that there are, you know that, that the um, that the harsh winter is is going to come like things will stop growing you need to prepare for it like that kind of marks humanity's maturity into understanding the world around them because you can't understand misfortune and calamity in the same way in the kind of hunter-gatherer mind space where you have no conception of time because bad things just come into your mm-hmm. existence, but without anything to compare them to, you can't project them into the future because there is no future. It's just bad things happen because elemental gods are, are angry or pleased. And really beyond that, there's no there's no real development of your of understanding your place in the world. Well, and, and to kind of pivot off that, you know, this is where religious ideas become more of an organized system, right? Because you, the, the gods are an explanation of where you've come from, what's going on right now, and where you're going. Mm-hmm. So that linear mindset is now introduced in a religious way. So instead of this sort of constant worship of nature, because that's you're in nature, you're just kind of living uh, day by day without really you know a beginning or end, now that there is this, this linear model of consciousness... We organize our religions this way, right? Mm-hmm. So what's what's our destiny? Where are we going? What's the point of all of this? Where before, I don't know that 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 real primitive religion had that sense, you know? It was just, this is why things are, and I'm sort of more one with God, right? Because mm-hmm. you're one with nature. Yeah. Well, and, and nature is... 
I think nature is where it is where we even get the idea of like a kind of like transcendent unknowable that like that, that that we're here in a way that we don't understand and civilization and the religions that accompany them are, are really our first attempt to kind of step back from ourselves and try to understand where it is that we are which is why it's important i think that like that what you said earlier these the city in sumeria was an entirely different way of being than than cities as we understand them today cities as we understand them today are are developed to such a point that we kind of just think of them as like First of all, we take them for granted that human mm -hmm. beings have lived this way forever and ever, because as far as we can experience, that's true. But also that it's just kind of this like convenient living arrangement for massive amounts of people to live together and provide for one another. And and but beyond like those materialist kind of conceptions of what a city is, like a, a Sumerian city state was much more than that. Because at the center of it is the center pin of the temple of and and in the temple is the god of that city. And that's what all of the city's growth comes out of, this center point, because linear consciousness requires a center point from which to proceed, whether it's in the past or the present. Like, it needs something to, to start from. That's the, like, the whole definition of linear consciousness requires a starting point. And so for the Sumerians and ancient peoples at this time, the city is the starting point, and in the center of the city is the temple. And in the center of the temple is the god. And people lived with their gods in the ancient world. Yeah, there wasn't any separation of church and state. This is a completely modern concept. So, you know, each city-state typically had a different god. And that god owned the city, is what was the belief of the inhabitants. And uh, sometimes this changed. You know, gods took over other cities. But as you said, in the middle of the temple complex, which was essentially the center of bureaucracy because the king didn't rule without the religious aspect. So this, the, the, the religion and the bureaucracy were one thing. And religious laws were the laws of the city. And the statue you were talking about I think is very interesting because we tend to, as, as, as a modern mind now, we look at statues and we know that, well, that's just a rock. You know, we, it's a symbol. Well, the ancients didn't believe that. The, the, the statue had a life. And so, yes, it was not the god per se, but it was the physical embodiment of the god. So when people worshipped before these statues, they were, in fact, worshipping their god. And they were, they were essentially giving their thoughts, their prayers, their energy, whatever you want to call it, to the statue. And the statue would become alive in their mind. So as much as they put their effort forth, that, that statue was literally the gateway, the bridge between them and their God. So it wasn't a symbol. It was a living reality, these statues. Well, and so, so the Sumerian culture is, is probably most famous for the ziggurat, which is a kind of like proto-pyramid, essentially. And I think that, like the reason that they fixated on this architectural concept is because of the way that they thought of their religion and and cities and life in cities in general is the idea that you're it's a it's the the temple in reaching up towards the heavens is a connecting point like you don't you don't have a civilization in the ancient mind without a connection to to god or your god or the gods i mean they they believed in many gods one was for the city, but they believed in a plurality of, of gods generally. 
Um, and without their kind of like assent and presence in your society, you didn't have a society. Like, because you were all the children of these gods. Like, that's that that's the way that they thought of it. Like, all of the um, the gifts of agriculture and civilization were bestowed upon them because of their relationship to their god as as its children, and and that they were they were living in this kind of pastoral state provided for by the embodied god at the center of the city. Like, their their view of their civilization was far more holistic then I think we can really comprehend in our, in our, in the, in the way that we think like shaped by modernity. Like we, we literally can't think this way anymore. I think I've said this in a previous episode, but you know, the way we look at it, like a traffic ticket is how they would view religious laws. It wasn't something different. Like you, you made a sacrifice before you started some sort of like commercial endeavor. Cause that's what you do. That's like, that's the same thing as getting a, a business license mm-hmm. or a, you know, a sales tax license. Like you go to the temple, you f- and, visit the priest, they tell the priest, you what you need and, and then you do it. And otherwise you can't start your endeavor. We have separated these two, but it was really the same thing. And, and for them, like the gods had come to form order out of chaos, literally order out of chaos. One of the first texts is called Enki in the world order. And it, and it talks about, you know, how the gods came to be and, and how everything was organized. Right. And um, these gods are here to bring order out of chaos. Well, what's the chaos? We're the chaos. Human beings are the chaos. Human beings in a state of nature, which is the hunter-gatherer state, that we're this kind of like amorphous Mm -hmm. kind of blob of a consciousness and that the gods have come to shape it for, for works. And so why are we here? We're here to work. So they, they, they literally believe man's lot in life was to labor. And, and to worship. And that man needed to do this in order to find any sort of peace in this life. And so the ziggurats you were talking about, well, that, that ziggurat is what we would know in the Bible as the Tower of Babel, right? This is where this idea of, you know, building a tower to heaven. Mm-hmm. Because, as you said, there was this, this desire to connect with the gods, right? So what do you do? You build a tower, a ziggurat a pyramid for different civilizations, whatever, steeples, right? And you're trying to get as close as you can to the heavens. Well, and because attendant with that idea is this idea that, like, in doing so, in accomplishing great works like this, you can become divinized. Like, because the gods... So there, there's this kind of, like, halfway point that also emerges at this time in human society of the heroes, like this is where we get these kind of like her- like Sumeria is where we even get the idea of like a heroic tale. Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh is the first hero yeah. of humanity. And the hero king. And 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 Gilgamesh is a man who becomes divinized by attaining to the status of the gods by brave deeds, by basically going through trials and tribulations, he becomes like the gods because in their conception the gods are beings that have transcended like what what it is that we experience by sheer will and tenacity and and overcoming obstacles and that human beings can set themselves on that same path. Rare human beings, not everybody. N- not but the everybody. Kings can. But I I like what you brought up and I, I want to kind of back up for a second to give a perspective that we have to look at morality like in three successive ages, okay? The oldest age, which is this time of Samaria, it's the time of ancient Greece, is is the hero the hero is center. So it's a, it's a morality 
that the people lived by according to how to be a hero. And so what they valued was physical strength, endurance, loyalty, you know, et cetera, et cetera. All those things that you, you know, all those values that, that you would hope that your hero would have, that was what everybody in the civilization respected. And so it was very sort of a, like a lot of physical qualities because it was brute strength that ruled at the time. Yes, there were other virtues, you know, like, you know, protecting people and all that, but it was, it was about brute strength and using the strength to conquer your obstacles. Later on, when we kind of get to a, the more classical antiquity, you get this idea of, you know, like Plato's philosopher king, right? So it's the idea of morality is no longer about your physical traits, but your mental traits it's because they have now like discovered the power of the mind, right? So what, what are the virtues for Plato or for Aristotle, right? You know, again, there's some overlap. There's, there's loyalty, but there's also wisdom now, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there's this ability to philosophize, to understand, to extrapolate. And so these become new virtues, right? You know, the idea of, of prudence and fortitude. But then Christianity shows up, right? And we get into a third age, and this third age of morality is compassion. It's love. It's empathy. It's turning the cheek. Now, successively, they haven't gotten rid of the past ages like qualities, so physical strength is still important in the Christian era. Mm -hmm. And the ideas of Plato and Aristotle are still important to the Christian philosophers, right? So it's kind of a, it's, a, it's an evolution where you're not actually destroying what's old, but you're building on it and refining it. So in the Christian era, it becomes this idea of compassion and love that you find in the New Testament, right? But they still, it's important to have a strong mind and a strong body. Now, I would argue that we're in a fourth age now, this postmodern age, in which they've basically just thrown all this away like crap. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just, you know, they've heaved it over, you know, into, into the, the rubbish, rubbish here. Yeah. And, and they're like, we don't need any of this because it's all nonsense. It's all made up. It's just, it's grand narratives, etc. But that, I think, of course, is nonsense. And I'm sure you agree with me. And there's this idea that all of these are important. But when looking at the Sumerians, we have to, we have to understand that what they value it's not their minds. It's not their hearts. It's their bodies mm -hmm. and the strength that can come from the body. So to take this on a, on a slightly uh, tangential kind of delve into masonry, I really like what you said about the successive ages of morality. And so in, in masonry, this is, the, this is our Tower of Babel. This is our great work is to build up over the ages this human morality. That masonry, you know, it, a lot of times it's unfortunately thought of as this kind of like program of self-help and self-development. It, it really has nothing to do with that. It's, a, yeah, it's, that's it, nonsense. it's this work that you're talking about, this, this great work that humanity has been engaged in across the ages. A of, refinement. A refinement from, from this chaotic state of nature into further, ever more ordered states of moral being. That like that the first thing that we can even comprehend is our bodies because we're so closely associated with that. But then once we've dwelt in that for a while and we've we've mastered those traits, we're not going to get rid of that. We're going to add the mind to it, 
and then 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 you get into this age of like this is where like you know really like refined like hindu thought comes into being that that you are in fact you're not the body you're the charioteer of this of this wild force and that your your job is to pilot it properly by the tenets of wisdom that have now been revealed to us this is the time of hermes right coming down mm-hmm. to the greeks and and showing them the the further elaboration of the civilizing art okay great you got farming here's writing here's here's all this other stuff that you you're going to need to worry about and then christianity comes along and says okay now with all this power don't you know don't tyrannize one another with it love one another and and this successive building throughout the ages is the like this is the work of the mystery schools this is what we're here to do it has nothing to do with making good men i mean we make good men better but that's such a surface explanation yeah, you know of what's going on. That, that <laughs> so called motto. That's such a banal version of what's actually going on here. In Freemasonry, we preserve all three evolutions of morality. They're all encapsulated within the Masonic degrees. You know, human valor, human wisdom, human compassion. All of these are encapsulated within Freemasonry. And that's why Masonry stands against these forces of modernity that want to destroy all this progress made for thousands of years. Masonry is a guardian. It's a steward. It's a protector of these ideas. And so, in many ways, it even takes one step further because what it does is it synthesizes all three of those into, I think, something brand new. Mm -hmm. Nietzsche would call it the Superman. Now, I don't necessarily agree with his concept of the Superman because he's basically trying to replace religion in the past with some sort of, you know, um, crazy Ubermensch, right? <laughs> but, but I think the idea of Superman is, is a good way of putting it. It's, it's somebody who is physically in control of themselves, strong, loyal, has huge levels of endurance and, and can master all the terrain of the earth and climb a mountain and you know, swim in the seas. But also the Superman is intelligent and wise and can debate and can understand and can use science and reason and logic. And But yet, at the same time, someone that is compassionate and loving and tries to uplift the downtrodden. This is what we would consider a Superman. We're, none of us are like this, right? No. But masonry isn't making good men matter, better. It's making men and women into super people. <laughs> super people. I like super people. That's very, uh, that's very politically correct. <laughs> the super people of the next age. Uh, it's very similar to the the idea in theosophy of, of of the masters that these were these were once men that have just evolved to a state of such like refinement on all three levels that they're still here. They still work among us. They're still living beings, but they're a new form, and that their new form is the example for which we strive. And to tie this back into Sumerian thought, that's how they view their gods. They view yes. their gods as living entities that, that, that had all these qualities, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll see this in Greek religion. You know, that, you know we, we tend to mock these, these old religions that have these anthropomorphic gods. Um, but who's to say that, that these gods did not walk the earth? You know, there mm-hmm. were these great people that walked the earth at some point in the past. I think it's very ignorant for us just to assume that... Um, you know, that's just that's just a, a matter of superstition. Well, that's kind of a, that's just another, you know, another point in the ledger against modernity that we have this idea that we're the only smart people that have ever existed, that everybody that we can't personally remember being alive 
was just a stupid idiot looking at thunderclouds and thinking that Zeus was mad at them. I, I, I think we really, we really, really do a disservice to our ancestors in this, in this way of thinking. I mean, the parallels between the Sumerian culture and the ancient Jews is crazy. And I, I don't even think most Christians or Jews are aware of um, the overlapping motifs. Of course, the Sumerians are older, right? Um, you know, King Solomon's temples built 1000 BC. And so thousands of years before that, there are Sumerian stories talking essentially about a place called Eden with a tree called the Halupu tree which, you know, um, grants knowledge to those that eat from its fruit. Um, and it plays a big part in the mythology of the Sumerians, especially with Anana. Um, but we'll get there a little later. And um, they have the same, you know, there, there's, there's a concept of Genesis, right? You know, the earth is created in a specific way and the gods, you know, create... Um, mankind you know uh, in a very similar way from from the earth essentially from from clay from dirt you know because that's how adam is made right you know out of clay and so there's all these overlapping stories you know with the tree with eden um the idea of lilith comes out of sumerian culture which then you find also uh, mentioned in jewish text and even within the bible when you look at uh jeremiah uh and ezekiel you find references to not only um, Sumer, the city, but to the queen of heaven, who is Inanna, essentially. So the ancient Jews were aware of the Sumerians, right? But I think a lot of what is in the, the Old Testament within the Torahs actually predates the Jews and comes from Sumeria. It's some sort of amalgamation of different texts that come from the ancient world. And um, ultimately, like, there's even the same, like, flood story. Yeah, so the, the Sumerians have a tale of a guy named Zayasudra, which is, in my mind, very, very close to our um, uh, historical and mythological figure Zarathustra, who was commanded by Enki to build an ark, get two of every living being on the, on the surface of the earth, put them in the ark. Enki floods the world to cleanse humanity of sin and degeneration, and... Zayasudra releases his animals and plants and his family becomes the founding family of humanity. I mean, it is, it, I say it like that because it's literally, it's the same story repeated over and mm -hmm. over and over again in every single culture. This one just happens to be um, the oldest with a very interesting um, name for the patriarch. But yeah, I mean, the other thing too about what you said with the, the ancient Jews having this material um, uh, to be referenced, anyone familiar with Middle Eastern geography would know that. So Sumeria and Mesopotamia is what we now call Iraq and Iran in the modern age. That's not really that far from Israel, from what we call Israel now. Like that, that, that it's very, very conceivable that the, the, the tribes that inhabited Israel were probably just ancient wanderers from Sumeria or lands around Sumeria. And they had access to all of this material. Um, it's pretty widely acknowledged by most biblical scholars that at least Genesis, but probably most of the Old Testament, is derivative of older sources, that they mm -hmm. were kind of compiled together by different um, tribal traditions that knitted it together into one continuous story, but that it references material that's much, much older than when it was first published by the Jews. And for any Freemason 
that's listening to this, you might wonder where a lot of our symbols come from, right? Well, one symbol, the double-headed eagle, uh, comes from the uh, one of the Sumerian city-states called uh, Lagash. And Lagash is it's called the, the double-headed eagle of Lagash. And there are carvings and stones in this ancient site um, that show this double-headed eagle. And that's 2,000 years before King Solomon's temple. Mm-hmm. It's 2,000 years before that. And so these symbols that we're using were not invented uh, 300 years ago. They're not invented in 1717. They're not, they're not, they're <laughs> they're not, they're not, they didn't all spring from the mind of James Anderson, as brilliant no. as that man was. It's not even like symbols of the Holy Roman Empire. Mm. It's not even symbols of ancient Greece and Rome. It's even older than that. Well, I, some of my most profound experiences in masonry have been those times in Masonic ritual or in Masonic research where you really, more than just an intellectual understanding, you, you know that when we say time immemorial, like we mean it. Yeah. It, this masonry in one form or another has been with us since the beginning of humanity. Probably starting in something like Sumeria, some city-state long, long ago in the dim recesses of history. When we say that this is ancient, it really is ancient. It's, it's, it's older than three or 400 years. And that's the purpose of some of these podcasts, is kind of show these links. I mean, there's no way to prove it. And, I mean, who knows what the real facts were 6,000 years ago. But based on what we know... The Sumerians, and especially the story of Inanna and her descent into hell, really reflects what we find in the story of initiation in, in various degrees of masonry. So I think it's time, you know, kind of lay a little, you know, little foundation here to the Sumerian civilization, but this is not necessarily a podcast about Sumeria, um, but about Inanna, right? And so Inanna is a goddess, and she is the goddess of love, of war, and a fertility. And her story begins in, in a text known as Inki and the World Order, right? And Inki's kind of like, I think you're like her grandfather, essentially. It's not her father, but... Um, Inki is the oldest of all the Sumerian gods, I think. He's the, the patriarch of the pantheon, right? Uh, he is the... I think he's the god of water, right? Like, he's the equivalent of, like, Poseidon, mm-hmm. you know? The, so there's, like, four main gods, you know, air, you know the sky, the waters... The, the earth, earth and uh, I forgot what the other one is. I think I don't know. It's kind of like the the spirit or something, mm-hmm. right? And probably associated with fire. I mean, it's yeah, it's probably very elemental. God. And so Inky's one. You know, he's he's essentially a sort of Poseidon, right? And um, and there's this tree. There's the Halupu tree, right? And Inanna, um, you know, she she comes on the scene and she is essentially like a virgin. Right, and because the sexual motifs are huge in Sumerian text, and so she goes to the tree to learn about sex. So she eats from the fruit of the tree, uh, and in some translations, she's like leaning against the tree. But um, she 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 bears the fruit. You know, she eats the, the fruit from this tree, and then she comes to know sex. Now we could take this in a very literal way, but I think like religiously, spiritually, as an occult perspective here. To know sex is to know the secrets of life and death, right? It's 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 the it's the laws of generation, right? Well, I was going to say like it's it's very interesting because you, you said she's the the goddess of love, war, and fertility. I mean, if you reduce that down to its basic elements, she's the goddess of sex and death, essentially. Like that—that's what that really means. And I agree with you. It's a 
It's an initiation into the destructive and regenerative forces of life. Like it, it's it's what gives birth to everything because you know with with every birth there's a death there is some kind of destruction whether it's of the mother's understanding of the world before her child like every new life is initiated by essentially by blood and fire and that's as the goddess of war she brings that with fertility she's the equivalent of eve in the jewish story right mm-hmm. you know she she eats this fruit and she comes to understand things that she did not understand. And she, she sort of sets the story into motion. Um, it's not as particular as, as Eve and Adam being like the only two sole human beings. And Inanna is a goddess. But it's still the same story. So I think it's, it was extrapolated out of Inanna's story, the idea of Adam and Eve um, and the tree of knowledge. Another really... Interesting symbolic association here is that Inanna is associated with the morning star or Venus and as the goddess of fertility and the, and the Sumerians, again, like they, this was the first agricultural civilization or one of the first agricultural civilizations. And at that time and in that place to have an agricultural civilization, you needed to cultivate wheat. And I think we, we mentioned this maybe even in the Leadbeater episode, but there's this there's this really old, weird idea in occult circles that... Don't call it weird. I'm just, you know, for, for the general public it's here. Different. I say, it's different. It's different. I find it very compelling. Um, but there is this idea, this kind of like tradi- the tradition lost to time that wheat was given to us either by or from Venus. That it's this gift of the gods that, ha- that has always been associated with Venus and that, I mean, the Theosophists believe that there was a, there, the, the being that made this world came from Venus and brought wheat and gave it to humanity as our, as our kind of basic unit of food. But again, every time, every time I see any kind of myth around wheat, Venus is always involved. Well, I think the idea in that myth is that, um, you know, Earth is sort of a new cycle for the human consciousness, for human souls. And uh, at one point that this, this, there was a cycle taking place on Venus as, as one day it will be Mars, you know? So it's the idea that humanity won't just be on one planet, but it will have different cycles on different planets. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, to some people that might be, seem silly, but at the same time, um, you know, when we actually look at like the plate tectonics on Mars and Venus, you can see that there are planets that are dead, there are planets that are coming alive, and there are you know, planets like Earth are like in their middle age, right? Well, Flourishing. I mean, NASA just announced like we're going to the moon to build a base to go to Mars. Like we're literally trying to put humanity on Mars. Yeah, it's true. Like it's not, it, I mean, that's, that's kind of, it's interesting that these, these, there really is nothing new under the sun. These themes repeat themselves. We're trying to start a new cycle of humanity on another planet. And what's interesting about Sumeria too is that this civilization uh, was very astronomically um, centered. They, and, and they had some, some weird artifacts too. Like this is an ancient cuneiform tablet with, a, with an accurate representation of the solar system with like the planets where they should be at a time, like way before telescopes or anything. They had some kind of astronomical knowledge that was far greater than it should have been for that level wow. of civilization. What's that guy's name? Zachariah. Zachariah Sitchin. Sitchin, yeah. right. So, I mean, if anybody's read 
that guy's books, I mean, there's this idea that all these gods, the Sumerian gods, are essentially like alien beings that came and like genetically created human beings to be sort of slaves and uh, and that the temple complexes in the middle of the cities are basically spaceports for their ships. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, anybody that hasn't read it, you should read it. It's interesting. I mean, I don't really ascribe to most of it. Um, but Zechariah does make a few good points. He does. He, and, and, it, and it is interesting because, like, if, you know, if you were to genetically engineer a race of servants, you would certainly instill within them a mythology that your lot in life is to labor and to worship. Yeah. So enough with aliens, because that can get pretty damn silly <laughs> quickly. Um, so Inanna is known by the Akkadians and the Babylonians and the Assyrians as Ishtar, which maybe mm. more of our viewers might be familiar with that name. Uh, for the Phoenicians, is uh, Astarte. Uh, Greece, it's Aphrodite. The Hittites, it's Suska. And in Rome... It's Venus, mm, as, as you okay. just mentioned. So this is a goddess that is ever-present in all civilizations. Uh, and there's many more references to, to other civilizations, but those are kind of the, the big ones, right? And, um, you know, as a side note, um, a lot of people think that, like, Easter comes from Ishtar. God, know, I hate that myth. But that's nonsense. That Nothing to do with that. If that's, you've heard that, look into it. It's not true. Yeah, that's too many pagan websites you've been going down to those weird rabbit holes of uh, trying to deconstruct Christianity. Anyway, um, so Inanna is the uh, is the queen of heaven, right? And her sister is the queen of death. And her name is Arishkakal. And the two of them are kind of like, in some ways they're kind of like twins, you know? And, mm-hmm. and, so, and a lot of occult writings, it's the same god. It's just the two different aspects of the one god, right? Death and life, mm-hmm. you know, above, below. And the, the sister's important because she's part of the story that we're going to get into. She's in the descent. She, she runs hell, right? And uh, Inanna's going to go into hell. So the, the two personalities are important. Um, and Inanna being sort of the, the, she's the morning star, right? She's, she is... She is Venus, right? She is the bringer of light in many ways. And her character is very different from the other characters from the, in the pantheon of, of the Sumerians because she, in many ways, um, is pointing to us as human beings the path that must be walked, right? The path that must be trodden in order for us to achieve something, right? And her story is basically the story of initiation, you know, it's really interesting just to just to step back for just a moment. And, uh, you know, if she's associated with the morning star. So Venus is is also um, visible at night shortly after the, the sun goes. Star. It's the evening star as well. And so it's interesting that like, you know, these these early agriculturalists would have been there would have been enough food to take care of somebody to watch the heavens. And this is where all their astrology comes from. That, But they would have seen at night Venus going down below the horizon in a state of darkness and then rising still in a state of darkness the next morning. So she descends into the underworld as we're about to describe, but also she ascends from the underworld before the sun returns. So it's this kind of journey that she makes every day into the underworld. And to kind of add to that, now that you just mentioned that, like if, if Inanna is the morning star, then Arishkakal is... The evening, the evening star, star. right? Yeah. And so they really are the same person, one mm-hmm. rising, one 
going when down. And um, the Descent of Inanna is is the beginning of a story that that creates a religious motif that is in almost every religion called Eros Gamos, which is Greek for sacred marriage. So the story of Inanna is this idea of um, a marriage that takes place. And so we're going to talk about this before we actually get into the story so that everyone understands the context here. So every year, um, the king of this Pacific Sumerian city-state um, would ha- go through a special ceremony in which they would go, the, the cult of Inanna had temples, and so the king would go to the temple complex and would lay with the high priestess. And the high priestess represented Inanna. And this had to be done once a year. And the reason for this is that that's how the crops came back. So they had to have the sacred marriage, the sacred union, the sacred sex. And um, the king would supplicate to Inanna, essentially. So it's very interesting here because most of our modern religion, it's sort of like male figures. Mm-hmm. But here the, the, the presiding character, the presiding goddess is Inanna. And the king would have to go... And, and lay with, you know, the representative of Inanna in the temple. And this was, you know, this was like a couple of weeks of like festivities and songs and feasts by the people in the city. And then this, you know, did they actually, did the king and the high priestess actually have sex? Was it something symbolic? Nobody really knows. But the idea is there that there has to be a union. And if there isn't that union, then your civilization is going to die, mm-hmm. right? It, you have to, and you have to do it every year. You got to bring this energy back into your civilization to keep it alive. So there was a real, real like sort of pragmatic, you know, approach to this story. And so the descent of Inanna, the story, the epic, which is actually the oldest epic, by the way, in, in human history that we have, um, is the story that leads up to this point. Because you see, Inanna is married to Demuzid, right? And Demuzid is, is the... He's considered like um, like the hero king, kind of. He's he's also like the the god of like of shepherds, but he represents man, right? And um, their marriage becomes the crux at, of the story that we're about to tell, and it, and it kind of climaxes as an idea that they have to have sex once a year. You know, it's really interesting if we look to another ancient agricultural society and that of Egypt and and how they were centered around the Nile Delta and its flooding, they come up with a very similar foundational story, which is the tale of Isis and Osiris, right? That, That Osiris has to be resurrected through essentially magical sex. Um, in order for the Nile to, to complete its cycle and flood and deposit its silt all over the field so that they can grow food. Like it, it's interesting that you find the same motif in any civilization that is centered around agricultural and particularly like this kind of like seasonal cycles. Like it kind of almost always did. Like the, even the ancient, um, the ancient Celt in Ireland had a very similar thing with the with the uh, the Green King or the Green Man of the forest mm-hmm. who, who had to do this, who had to be resurrected through a union with a woman in order to bring life back to nature. And we have the story in Greece of Persephone, you know, mm-hmm. uh, being dragged into hell. Goddess and, of wheat, you know, yeah. has to come back. And, yeah. You know, Demeter is all sad. So, you know, there's, there's this compromise between Hades and Demeter that Persephone can live half the year in the underworld and half the time up, you know, in the earth with 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 the mother. 
And the story is the same with Inanna. So Inanna, uh, in the end of the story, is you'll, uh, Dumuzid is forced into hell half the year and then can come out to have sex and be with Inanna for the other half of the year, right? Mm-hmm. And this is their explanation of, you know, the, the cycle of agriculture, which is so important to them. Um, but keep in mind that this idea of eros gamos is, is really the fundamental aspect here. It's the sacred marriage. And when we look at things like alchemy, you know, mm-hmm. um, and when we look at all the motifs in, in occult symbolism. Rosicrucianism, for example, it, is, is the marriage. Exactly this. Yeah. It's the marriage. It's about bringing the opposites and reconciling them. And Inanna is very interesting in this because she um, is kind of reported to be sort of androgynous uh, in her sort of demeanor. It's still a she, but, but androgynous. And she had a very unique power, which was to turn women into men and men into women. Hmm. Um, now, of course, this will bring up ideas today of, of transgenderism, etc. Except this was very different back then because today it's people trying to make this a physical reality as a transition from gender, uh, from one gender to another. And in the ancient world, this idea, I mean, they didn't have a word for transgenderism. It was the idea of bridging the opposites and having that marriage within, mm-hmm. right? So the idea is that men should become women and women should become men. So we become more androgynous and that we actually have the sacred marriage within ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, the, I mean, that, the, that marriage in the spirit, the, the, like you said, it's an ancient alchemical idea that has, probably has its roots in hermetic philosophy, as we'll see in the opening to this myth. The, those two are kind of linked here. But this idea of, of blending opposites and reconciling, I mean, it, it goes back to the very foundation of the Sumerian civilization. What, what is that but bringing order out of chaos? Right, combining these two disparate forces in order to produce something. This again, as Inanna is the goddess of sex and death, like this, this is what humanity is. We are the combination of two disparate forces. Everybody alive listening to this was the combination of a man and a woman coming together to produce something new. Like this, this, this is mm-hmm. the most basic unit of understanding that we can possibly have about our existence in this universe. Well, this power that Inanna has to turn women into men, men into women, right? Um, in, in some texts, she's said to have been a man in certain occasions and a woman in other occasions, as she deems fit. Um, her priests in the temple complex are called the Gala, and they were divided into two groups of people, which these names come out of the story we're about to read. And... Um, it is said that one of the groups is essentially men that would be initiated and they would either symbolically or physically castrate themselves in order to become more androgynous. Mm-hmm. And that the women that were initiated would dress as men and take male names. So whatever you are entering into the temple complex, you know, you're being initiated, the, the, the climax of the ceremony was probably the high priestess representing Inanna making you into the opposite because mm-hmm. Inanna had this special power. And um, so the Gala priests, um, they, they existed for thousands of years. Uh, they say there was sacred prostitution in these temples. Um, I don't know if it was, again, physical or symbolic. But later on in Rome, there's a cult of Sibylle and Attis. And Sibylle is another mother goddess who's just like Inanna. 
um, with a husband called Attis, which is very much like Dumazud, and the priests of this cult were called the, the Gala as well. It's a mm. double L instead of one L for the Sumerians. And um, it was always men that had to castrate themselves and then dress as women. And we know a lot about this from early Christian uh, historians who are constantly criticizing these transgender people as being weak, inferior men mm-hmm. and sort of just taunting them and, you know, saying all sorts of jokes about these, these Gala priests uh, in Rome. So there's this idea of transgenderism in these ancient mystery schools. But again, I don't think it's what we're seeing today in in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. It, it, there may have been physical aspects to it, but it was a spiritual transformation. It was an idea that to become closer to Inanna, one had to become the opposite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's we'll see that in in the opening of the myth here as we is essentially this whole story starts because Inanna sets her sights on her own opposite. And this gets back into an even even deeper idea in, in mystery traditions that existence itself is a product of God's desire to know what he doesn't know, right? That, that existence was created so that he who is everything can experience not being everything. It, it, it's a very, very fundamental idea in occultism that searching for your opposite and reuniting with it is the purpose of whatever that whatever this is that we're all experiencing that principle lies at the heart of that all of it and i think that's one of the main reasons in co-masonry and i don't want to get off on this topic because i actually want to do a podcast on this but the reason we are all men and women are called brothers in co-masonry is for this very idea we are assuming a sort of an androgynous gender in masonry that's why we dress the same that's why we use the same title uh for people regardless of their outer world gender preference we are in a lodge but a naked soul mm-hmm. not without the outer trappings of a body of gender uh of names we become one body right so the the process of initiation is the process of the sacred marriage mm-hmm. and those that succeed in becoming part of the brotherhood have sort of at least in a symbolic way given up these outer trappings so let's get into the myth itself now we're not going to read this word for word but there's some some really interesting passages that we wanted to pull out um, for the listener so it opens up with the following lines from the great above she opened her ear to the great below From the great above, the goddess opened her ear to the great below. From the great above, Inanna opened her ear to the great below. My lady abandoned heaven and earth to descend to the underworld. Inanna abandoned heaven and earth to descend to the underworld. She abandoned her office of holy priestess to descend to the underworld. And so from there, she she then it it lists off all of her temples that she then abandoned. Seven city states. Yeah, exactly. So she 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 has a home in each one of these city states, and she leaves each one in order to descend into the underworld. And I wanted to ask you, Brother Matthias, at this point, because you've done far more reading on this than I have. When they say descending into the underworld, what did that mean to the Sumerians? Is presumably it's not the kind of like. Christian idea of, of a hell where there's fire and damnation and everywhere, but what? Why would she expect to find divine powers and gifts in the in the underworld? 
I think even I think I think in the in these ancient times the unlocking the mysteries of death was a way of truly living like e- even to the most profane person like they they wanted the keys to understanding what happened when you died so this the these stories talk about how somebody descends into hell the underworld whatever you want to call it and it's a journey that we could say is inward they may not have seen it exactly that way but it certainly was um, a way of attaining the knowledge necessary to conquer death mm-hmm. and so it, it, yes it's a scary place but it's not a place that you like you get burned and you're getting tortured you know it's not purgatory it's it's a place that you go that is scary it's dangerous but there is a reward to be gained from it well and it's not a punishment it's something that you take upon yourself to 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 go and do and there's that you know famous alchemical you know maxim that only by journeying inwards to the depths of the earth do you find the hidden stone right that's kind of an echo of what's being vitriol of of what's being laid out in this yeah. myth so, so she, she abandons her seven temples, which mm-hmm. it's interesting, the number. It's seven. Seven city-states, seven temple complex. She abandons them. So she's abandoning her worldly possessions, mm-hmm. right? Well, and so and with that, there's also this implication, I, I guess, for the person living in Sumeria at the time, like, this is a big deal. Because if Inanna abandons her temples, then who's ensuring that the crops are going to grow? Like, it, it's very, like, in telling the story, again, we don't think this way, but in telling the story, it's like, it's very imperative to everybody listening to this myth that she come back. Because if we lose Inanna to the underworld, then everything is lost. You know, agriculture ceases. We don't get the crops back. Like, this was of central importance in the lives of Sumerian people that Inanna come back from the underworld. But she comes prepared, Right. Uh, to the underworld and by abandoning her temples she's able to accumulate seven divine powers right and because she knows the journey into the underworld will be a difficult one no nobody's ever come back alive mm-hmm. so she she equips herself with seven seven powers and these are in the story they're like a wig uh, a necklace it's like these beads that cover up her breasts she has a, a measuring rod that she takes down there some kind of like neck covering it's it's all this like these kind of like bodily trappings of clothing but also of office like she's got this lapis lazuli uh measuring rod like it, it's all it's all very very and a ring she's got a bunch of working tools yeah. essentially but she has seven of these right um and so she equips herself knowing it's be dangerous and by the way, the reason she's going down there is because uh, her sister, Ereshkigal's husband, called the Bull of Heaven, has died. So she wants to, Anana wants to go to the funeral. But mm. again, you go, you, you know, she, she wants the secrets, mm. right? She wants, to, she wants to know these funeral rites. But nobody comes back alive. Oh, and that's, we should say, like, that's kind of the rule of the Sumerian underworld. If you enter it, you don't come back out. Yeah. The, the, the gods of the underworld do not let you leave. She actually goes to Enki and says, so like, I really want to do this. And Enki's like, oh, you shouldn't do this. This is a really bad idea. And she's like, yeah, too bad. I'm going. So she abandons her temples. She gets her seven sort of working tools, right? Her divine powers uh, that cover up various parts of her body, um, which is important in the story. And she approaches the outer door. And there is uh, like a Tyler, right? There's this guardian this, uh, called Nitty, and you know she basically she knocks on the door of the temple, hmm. 
So this is how the text reads. When Inanna arrived at the outer gates of the underworld, she knocked loudly. She cried out in a fierce voice, Open the door, gatekeeper. Open the door, Nettie. I alone would enter. Nettie, the chief gatekeeper of the Kerr, or underworld, asked, Who are you? She answered, I'm Inanna, queen of heaven, on my way to the east. Nettie said, If you are truly Inanna, queen of heaven, on your way to the east, why has your heart led you on a road from which no traveler returns? Now that is just laden with Masonic symbolism. So not only knocking on the door of the temple and encountering a gatekeeper, she declares who she is. She says that she's on a journey to the east, which for those who, who may not know, that, that's a symbol in masonry that, that masons are traveling eastwards in search of light. From west to east. From west to east. And then the really interesting part is where the, I'm going to call him the outer guard here, Nettie says, why has your heart led you on the road from which no traveler returns? Uh, it's a symbolically important question in masonry that, you know, where um, in, in the catechism, where were you first prepared to be a mason? And the answer is traditionally in my heart. So it's it, like this language is almost taken directly from Masonic ritual. Yeah, it's, it's hard not to see that um, this text influenced the modern writers. But maybe it isn't even this text. I mean, this just concept is something that reemerges all the time in our minds from the collective unconscious because it's just this is how we approach this type of journey. You know, there's always a gatekeeper, a guardian, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, somebody has to make the request. And then, you know, there's always the question, why are you doing this? Why do you want to take this journey? So, like, this motif is just repeated in all the mystery schools. Well, and then there's a, an interesting passage that, that follows this where Inanna answers and she says, Because of my older sister, Ereshkigo, her husband, Gugalana, the bull of heaven, has died. I have come to witness the funeral rites. Let the beer of his funeral rites be poured into the cup. Let it be done. And Nettie answers her and says, Stay here, Inanna. I will speak to my queen. I will give her your message. And this should be immediately apparent to any mason listening to this what this is representative of someone's going to report to the master of the lodge yeah right and so the tyler you know nettie goes and speaks to the queen uh, of the underworld and um she basically says fine let her let her come but i want you to be prepared to take away as much as you can from her as she descends. And there are seven gates, essentially. Mm -hmm. So there are seven portals, seven gates, in which Inanna will have to descend to get into the heart of, of the underworld. Mm -hmm. And so she, she basically presents herself. And uh, let's see here. Um, the uh, Arishkagal says, Come, Nettie, my chief gatekeeper of the Kerr, or underworld. Heed my words. Bolt the seven gates of the underworld. Then, one by one, open each gate a crack. Let Inanna enter. As she enters, remove her royal garments. Let the holy priestess of heaven enter, bowed low. <laughs> Another very interesting <laughs> passage for any mason listening to this. But And then, so she goes on after this, and at each gate... She's required to give up one of her uh, one of her royal garments or, or instruments that she carries, and each one of these corresponds to a different part of her body, or that they they fulfill a certain purpose. And so there's this idea that as she descends through this uh, essentially this initiation, she's giving something to pass at each one of these gates. 
I believe that this surrendering of these seven garments, right, is similar in Hermeticism to the ascension of the soul through the seven planetary bodies in mm. which you're surrendering seven parts of your being or the seven bodies of man before you can rejoin the totality by by accessing the fixed stars, right? Mm. This is a reverse sort of story where it's a descent. She's coming down through those planets. But she, it literally says you have to give up your garments, right? So she's giving up, you know, more subtle and subtle aspects of her seven bodies mm. until nothing remains but her soul when she enters the underworld. Because she enters the underworld naked. And, th- and this, is, this reminds me very much of, of the... Um, the seven stages of the alchemical process that you start with this kind of like piece of matter, a piece of um, unadorned earth. And through these seven steps, you refine it further and further and further until finally, supposedly, you're, you're left with the absolute essence of a thing and that you've discovered it's, you know, it's capital T, capital N, true name. And you, mm-hmm. you fully understand it. It's this, it, the exact same process is being outlined here. Each time she uh, passes a gate and she approaches the next one, she always says, what is this? And the Tyler says, Quiet, Inanna. The ways of the underworld are perfect. They may not be questioned. Hmm. So that's said seven times. Um, because she keeps asking this question. What is this? And she's told to quiet, to be quiet, and, and to just respect. Mm-hmm. Because in some ways, this process of going through the seven gates is what she's seeking. Yeah, and she's trying to she's trying to question it as she goes through it without really understanding. It's like stop asking questions until you've at least passed the seventh gate. And you know this is like this is very um, important in masonry. Like the people people ask like why is masonry secret? Why do you keep everything hidden? Why is why are there secrets in masonry? And for me, in in large part, there it's a symbolic process of teaching people that go through masonic rituals that secrets are kept by their very nature. Like, there is no answer to the questions that you're asking that I can give you. There's an answer that you can arrive at by passing through the gates. But, like, I'm the gatekeeper. I can't tell you what it's like to go through the gate. Like, that that's a totally different experience than what I have to go through. And it's the same in Masonic Ritual. Masonic Ritual, like, there's nobody that can answer what it is for you. Like, we can, there are signposts, there are symbols, there are, imperfect methods of communication from brother to brother but there's mm-hmm. nothing like i can't give you my experience of masonry that's impossible but the same experience will always be given mm-hmm. so we should arrive at the same place some slower some faster but eventually there's only one conclusion yeah there's only one underworld that we're descending into so she arrives naked into the main chamber of the underworld and the text reads as follows Naked and bowed low, Inanna entered the throne room. Arishkakol rose from her throne. Inanna started towards the throne. The Ananya, the Ananya, the judges of the underworld, surrounded her. They passed judgment against her. Then Arishkakol fastened on Inanna the eye of death. She spoke against her the word of wrath. She uttered against her the cry of guilt. She struck her. Inanna was turned into a corpse, a piece of rotting meat, and was hung from a hook on the wall. So essentially, she reaches the absolute bottom point. She's descended all the way into the underworld. She's been judged, scorned, yelled at, declared guilty, and ultimately killed. Like, she she has reached the very bottom of this experience. 
But she's judged. So mm. this is like, you know, the judgment, right? When we die. Yeah. In the yeah. hall of Amenti, right? By the, the Egyptian gods <coughs> where you're, you're weighed against the feather. She's, she's surrounded by these elemental forces and they declare her unworthy. And what really strikes me here, I mean, this has a lot of, you know, motifs from the third degree, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and about the stories of our grandmaster, Hiram Abiff. But she is ultimately, she's turned into a corpse. And she's hung from a hook on the wall. So this is a real allusion to Christ, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like she's suspended upward on the wall. And, and I wouldn't call this a crucifix, but this it's a similar type kind of placement of the dead body. And this is a motif that you find in, in many myths of this type where some kind of heavenly being descends or goes somewhere extraordinary in order to gain knowledge. So, for example, in the Norse traditions, Odin, who is the god of, of the runes and of magic and of human knowledge, he uh, he goes to Yggdrasil and hangs himself on it for nine days in order to gain the, gain the wisdom. Essentially, that you have to die and, and be resurrected in order to gain any kind of important knowledge you have to sacrifice yourself by hanging on something. I find that to be very interesting. It's reminiscent also of the of the hanged man in um, the tarot, Major Arcana, which is also a card of knowledge and of wisdom mm-hmm. and of gaining hidden secrets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is a motif that's repeated in almost every religion. Again, if we keep finding it, it's got to be important. Mm-hmm. Because why would every civilization, independent of one another come up with the same damn story. Yeah, this isn't something we can dismiss by calling our ancestors primitive. Like this this means something. And if you're a Freemason, this is a whole new way of looking at the initiation, passing and raising. Mm-hmm. You know? This puts a, a real kind of mm-hmm. concise um, perspective on what we're doing, right? We what we're really trying to do as Masons is to learn the secrets of life and death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and that has always been what lies beyond the veil of religion, right? And, and this, is, this is not intended to, to trash religion in any way, but the, there's always this kind of concept in religion that there's, you know, what, what God or the gods have set down, but that there's always this kind of like second option for the bold and the daring who, who, who want to, you know, transgress to this forbidden area in order to gain the secrets. That's kind of always available in all these traditions. Like, like in, in, you know, early Judaism and, and the Christianity's Old Testament, like there's this idea of Eden, right? But like, so God puts them in Eden, gives them all these rules and says, go ahead and live happy, contented lives. But, and he doesn't say this explicitly, but, uh, es- but essentially, there's also this other path you can take. I wouldn't recommend it because I'll make your life really hard if you do it. But there is a great prize sitting over here you if you're willing. tree of life, of immortality. <laughs> yeah, it, here's uh, how you get it. And it's I put gonna a suck. couple people, I put a Tyler there to guard <laughs> yeah, that as well. With a flaming sword, yeah. Um, and we're going to continue here with some Christian motifs because um, the corpse is on the hook for three days. Mm-hmm. On the third day, we're going to have to back up in the story because we didn't tell you this part. Um, before Inanna left on her journey to the underworld, she, she went to her closest confidant and priest, um, Ninshubur, and said, Hey, I'm leaving, but if I don't come back in three days, go to the other gods because there's something wrong and you, you need to get me out of there. So 
uh, Ninshubar goes to the various gods, finally to Inki, and says, look, Inanna hasn't come out of the underworld for three days. What are we going to do? And, the, and it should be said, the other three don't care what happened. They're like, it's her fault. We told her not to do this. Yeah. Leave her there. But Enki is the one that has. It's like, well, I really love her, and you know, she's very, you know, very dear to me. So this is what you do. And um, basically, this is where we get back into the motifs of transgenderism. But uh, Enki creates uh, two transgendered beings, um, who are collectively called the Gala, which are actually the names of the priests in the physical temples of Inanna. But in the story, they're kind of like these two flies. At least they, they can make they have themselves. the ability to they're turn demons. Into flies. Yeah. And don't take demons in sort of the Christian way. Like demons are like they're just they're 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 angels. They're they're beings of God. Well, so just real quick, in the ancient world, like the, the word the, the demons comes from this Greek idea. They're like elemental forces that can be yeah. summoned up and commanded. They're not like they're not like good, the golem. They're not good or bad. They're they're temporary creations that can be sent on missions, essentially. So this high priest is like, great, you know, let's make these these transgendered, you know, clay beings, you know, and um, they turn themselves into flies and they fly down into the underworld and they go into the the throne room and they see Arishkagal crying, lamenting, upset about, you know, her life. It's it's written in, in one translation that she's basically she's in a state of agony akin to giving birth. She's like, they find her like writhing around on the ground of the throne room, like looking like she's about to give birth to something. Yeah, I'm going to read this real quick. So the flies are there and Ariskakal moans, oh, oh, my inside. And so the gala respond, oh, oh, your inside. And she moaned, oh, oh, my outside. And they moaned, oh, oh, your outside. And it kind of goes on and she's kind of going through the various parts of her body, sort mm-hmm. of agonizing. And by repeating it, they're sort of like saying it's okay. Yeah. And she becomes very touched by the compassion of these of these demons. Well, and and in doing so, she she basically says she kind of overlooks the fact that they've uh, trespassed into into the underworld, and she asks them. It says, "Who are you, moaning, groaning, sighing with me? If you are gods, I will bless you. If you are mortals, I will give you a gift." I will give you the water gift, the river in its fullness. And the, and the gala answer, we do not wish it. And so she says, I will give you the grain gift, the fields in harvest. And they reply, we do not wish it. And finally, she gets a little fed up and says, speak then, what do you wish? And they answer together, we wish only the corpse that hangs from the hook on the wall. Rishkigal says to them, the corpse belongs to Inanna. And they respond to her, whether it belongs to our queen, whether it belongs to our king, that is what we wish. And so she gives it to them in, in return for this kind of sympathetic series of gestures that they've uh, that they've shown her. The and you know there's this is a really interesting point is that ancient gods were kind of like bound to these weird traditions. Of there like, was there was a law like like well not only was there law that they were like not able to be removed from but like you could trick the gods like if you got if you got in and said the right stuff they kind of like they know what you're doing. But they have to do it. Like, they have to go through these forms. And I, I really, like, symbolically, I don't know necessarily what that means other than, like, perhaps that the laws of nature can be understood and operated within. But it really, like, this is something that, like, ever since I was young reading about mythology, I'm like, how is it that we can trick the gods? 
Like why in all these myths is it is are human beings able to exert some kind of like seemingly undue influence on these divine powers that we shouldn't necessarily have, but it's like it's like they have to listen to us for some reason. A great analogy of that is science. It's like, man, we can create nuclear power and it could power our cities and our spaceships and everything, but it can also destroy us. Mm-hmm. So like the laws of nature, they're there for a reason, but we can sort of manipulate them in such ways as to harness great power. And we probably shouldn't be able to do that, mm-hmm. but we can. It's kind of like it, it goes along with this idea. You, you see this in the, in the myth of the, of the Tower of Babel. And it's interesting to me that those are from the same, that these two myths are from the same culture. But there's this idea that like we have this special power that everybody else in the universe has to obey. For, but, we, but like we don't realize it. Like in the Tower of Babel myth, like the gods, you know, destroy the tower and confound our language because like they're getting a little too close to being able to do what we do. But they can't just like outright destroy that. Like they have to confuse it. Like there's there's some weird thing where like, and you see this too in like... It's like a vampire. I was just going to say, you yeah. see in the midst of the vampires where like... You got to welcome You got to let them in. Like there's yeah. some... these Because they, they obey natural law. Yeah. And, 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 and our history of myth seems to be like Try, like us bumbling through this and not realizing the power that we have. This is a weird motif that's always stuck with me. And this is why we got to read these stories because we got to figure out what power we do mm-hmm. have in order to learn the secrets of life and death. So on the third day, Inanna is resurrected. Mm-hmm. Again, very Christian, right? Yeah. On the third day, she's hanging, you know, basically from this, you know, Sumerian, you know, crucifix. Cross, yeah. And She's brought to life. Um, oh, that should be said. So Enki gives each of these beings, one, he gives them the water of life, another, the food of life, and they have to sprinkle them on her to bring her back to life. Yeah, which, again, this is very third degree here. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is very much climax of a third degree story uh, with um, you know the wardens and what they do with the candidate. Well, and, and quickly for those, um, f- for those wondering where the second degree is in this, I would direct you back to the gifts offered by Arishkagil of of wheat and water. Yeah. That the, the, the whole system of the Blue Lodge is, is contained in this myth. And on that, we'll say no further. So, <laughs> Inanna is resurrected by the, by the gala. Gala? I'm not sure. What is it? Gala or gala? I have no idea. Um, we're asking people that lived 6,000 years ago. Who cares? So, now... In the underworld, again, nobody can leave the underworld. Mm-hmm. So it said, no one ascends from the underworld unmarked. If Inanna wishes to return from the underworld, she must provide someone in her place. So there's a price. Mm-hmm. There is a price. And so she leaves the underworld and the Gala are with her because the Gala, though they worked to save her, must find a replacement for her. They're, they're bound to the completion of this mission, right? And the first person she bumps into is her confidant, mm-hmm. um, her Ninshuber. Her, her, her yeah. yeah. And the Gala, like, we're taking, you know, Ninshuber. And she's like, no, this person was loyal to me, saved me. And the Gala, they, they was like, okay, well, let's move on. But, like, they want, they, they want to take somebody quickly. So, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it, I think from what I remember, it's Erishkigil that sends out demons of her own to take somebody back, right? It's not the Gala that Enki 
I'm confused by the by the demons that we have here. No, it's the same demons. It's the same demons. It's the same okay. demons. So, yeah. so again, they operate on natural law, yeah. and there there's these kind of unbreakable yeah. rules here. So, the next person they bump into is Inanna's son, and the Gaelic are like, "We're taking your son." It's like, "No, it's my son. Don't do that." And then they keep journeying, right? And they bump, you know, they bump into a Dimazod, who's the husband of Inanna. And he doesn't seem to care that she disappeared or did any of this. <laughs> yeah. He's actually, he's, he's like, I he's think like he's hanging a, out on the throne. Yeah, he's like, he's a, all dressed he, up. He's yeah. great. He's got ladies everywhere. He's having a good time. And Inanna gets very angry and says, take him. <laughs> and so they, the, the Gaelic go after him and he, he escapes. And we're not going to get into the details, but this is actually another text at this point. Uh, he escapes and um, he's running. But eventually he gives up. He realizes like he can't out outmaneuver natural law, I guess. Yeah. And he's dragged into the underworld. But then Inanna feels bad and uh, goes to her sister, you know, Rishkagol, and says, oh, I think I was a little hasty. I was a little upset with, with my husband. And there's the compromise that, you know, you know the, the ways of the underworld must be maintained. So Dimazud will remain in the underworld half the year. And in the other half of the year, he can emerge up into heaven and earth in order to be with his wife, Inanna. And they they then have this secret marriage mm-hmm. renewed every year. Yeah. He, he, like, again, like he, the price must be paid, but also the natural order must be maintained. Like nobody, nobody wants all of this carefully constructed order to collapse. Even the goddess, you know, the furious goddess of the underworld cannot allow a, like the pillars that hold up heaven and earth to be compromised because then the entire system of creation would collapse this is an amazing story it's very short you can read it in like 30 minutes i really recommend that everybody go out and and you can find a copy online um of the descent of inanna but again it's the oldest epic that we have found on the planet earth and here we have in this oldest epic a story that parallels Freemasonry. Mm-hmm. Any Freemasons listening to this podcast, you know exactly what we're talking about. How is there any chance in anyone's mind that you could say that Masonry came from 1717? I don't know how you can say that Freemasonry is not the modern mysteries, that it is not the heir to the ancient mystery schools, mm-hmm. that we are carrying on the tradition of these rituals that are allowing us to go within ourselves, to learn the secrets of life and death. You know, and I think like, it's like we were talking about before how, how we have this kind of like blinded and arrogant view today where like, because we have skyscrapers and refrigeration, everybody that came before us is just stupid and we don't have to pay attention to them because we don't have any evidence of their civilizations. This... The things that were written about in ancient stories, the things that our ancestors felt so important as to transmit orally for thousands of years without being changed, like these things mean something and they still mean something. These aren't just tales to be forgotten or cute little bedtime fairy tales of primitive people. Like there's a meaning to all this and we don't know to the extent that we think we do. We, we think now because we have only somewhat mastered the material plane 
that we just have all the answers, that we have everything that we could possibly ever need, and that everything that came before is just fodder to be, to be laughed at and scorned. But that's a huge mistake. These, our ancestors knew things, and it would behoove us to find out what those things were because the world hasn't changed. We're, well, like, it still applies. Technologically, we've grown so much, but at the same time, we've lost so much because, as you said, we look back and think these are superstitious, ignorant people of the past that couldn't read or write or understand anything. But they have the same problems that we do today, right? We're worried about dying. We're worried about what's going to happen after that. I mean, why do we prolong our lives? Why do people do cosmetic surgery? Why do they try to delay aging? You know, why do people go to the gym? Like, all that we do today, it's the same impulse as people thousands of years ago. We're trying to defeat death. We want to be immortal. We don't want to die. The person that tells me they don't care whether they die or not is a liar. We all care. I'm not saying that maybe people aren't scared or maybe not ready for it, but we care about life and death. That's why our entire materialistic society is around trying to keep us alive as long as possible, right? What's, what's Jeff um, Bezos investing a lot of his money into? You know, companies that try to figure out how to stop aging, right? Like this is... This, this, <laughs> yeah, he's, either to, he's either trying to live forever or go to space. But either way, the dude doesn't want to stay here and he certainly doesn't want to go to the other side. Well, he might be wanting to go to another planet <laughs> so that, you know, he doesn't die here, right? <laughs> and so we have this same impulse, but we're, we're missing the point that we already have a technical manual to how to become immortal. It's the ancient mystery schools. It's Freemasonry today. It's religion. You know, between the lines, there is ritual. And these rituals are instructions on how to defeat death. It's really like it's, it's incredible to me what masonry has and doesn't realize that it has we i mean we literally have in our rituals a guide to traversing the other side of death like that that that's so underrated in terms of what of what that is like this is not like this isn't a social club this isn't a self-help program. It's not a drinking club for boys that was founded in London in 1717. This is the method by which human beings liberate themselves from the shadow of death. Like, it's that simple. And, 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 think, of, and think of the implications of that. Because as we've shown in this podcast today, what we have in Masonic ritual stretches back to a time when gods walked among men. Or at least people believe that, Right. Where did this knowledge of the other side of death come from? Think about this for a minute. Like, if, if this is true, if what we have is the way to negotiate the seven gates of the underworld, that, that it is the guide by which our immortal soul can travel onto further realms, where did that come from? What is the origin of that? And what does, like, what does the very fact of the existence of the ancient mysteries mean? It's something far more than a collection of stories. Well, it's, it must be divinely inspired, right? It must be something given to us by the gods. Because we find it everywhere, all the time, repeated. We unconsciously write stories about these, these ideas. And at the end of the day, I would challenge the Freemason to stop looking at the ritual as 
is just symbolic masturbation, right? Let's look at these symbols. What do they mean to me? This is what I feel like they mean to me today. I'm not saying that's bad. What I'm saying is that maybe the rituals are a formula. They're a technical manual. Let's take them a little more literally and realize they're, they're giving us the direction we need in order to conquer life and death. But we just go there. We go through these rituals. We're like, oh, I've already seen this. I never want to see this again. This is boring, you know. Uh, no. We may actually, in fact, have to do all this when we die. And maybe all these rituals, we repeat them over and over and over again because the moment we, 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 we leave this, this physical life of ours, we will, in some abstract sense, have to undergo the descent of Inanna. We will have to go and, and give up the garments of our outer expression of our bodies and of our minds, and we have to surrender these garments, and the soul will be tested by guardians. You know, I find everything you're saying to be very profound because it, it, it gives a voice to, to a thought that I've had for a very long time. And, I, and I'd like to leave, especially our listeners who are Masons, with a final thought. And that is to, when the next time you're in a lodge, the next time you're in a ceremony, the next time you're studying Masonry, contemplate the radical idea just for a moment that how would you live? How would you think? How would you be if what masonry says in its ritual was real? How would, how would that shape your life if everything that you're told was, was absolutely true? What would that do to your life? Thank you for listening to Legends of the Craft. This podcast is purely the opinion of brothers Matthias Comcier and Axel Suvari not represent the official views of Universal Co-Masonry. Universal Co-Masonry is a Masonic order founded on the principles of liberty, equality, and fraternity that admits men and women without distinction of race, religion, or creed. For more information, please visit universalfreemasonry.org.